Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast Supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. When shorts were short only concerns itself with what was actually a very narrow window in football history when teams wore, well, short shorts. The podcast will only cover football from 1954, when Umbro made their first England kit with shorter shorts, a design that was widespread within English football by the mid-50s, to 1992, when short shorts were all but finished as Umbro's baggy shorts for Tottenham's new kit, ahead of the 91 FA Cup final, quickly caught on. I'm Daniel Ruiz-Tyson. This is when shorts were short. If the shorts weren't short, we don't talk about it. This week, we look back at what is the most overlooked phase of Brian Clough's managerial career, the seven-month spell during which he and his assistant, well, more than an assistant really, Peter Taylor, took charge of third division Brighton and Hove Albion in the 1973-74 season. Clough and Taylor were big news that winter, as they would be throughout the rest of the decade, but the media frenzy surrounding the pair was arguably at its peak in the final months of 1973 after the 38-year-old Clough had called Derby chairman Sam Longson's bluff and, along with Taylor, resigned from their posts at the previous season's European Cup semi-finalists. While Derby County's stunned players threatened to strike in order to get their former manager and assistant back at the baseball ground, Clough and Taylor stunned English football by taking up chairman Mike Bamber's offer to try and get Brighton, then sixth from bottom of the old third division, back into the second division. It was a move that made no sense 48 years ago, and a move that arguably still makes no sense. For this episode, I interviewed Spencer Vignes, the author behind Bloody Southerners, the story of Clough and Taylor's time at the Goldstone ground and how those seven months together almost broke their working relationship for good. There's a third protagonist too, though, for Bloody Southerners is also the story of Chairman Mike Bamber, a colourful character, musician and property developer, acknowledged by Clough later to be the best chairman he ever worked for. Bamber would eventually realise his dream of getting Brighton into the top flight, but not before a somewhat disorientating ride with the tour de force that was Brian Clough. Just before we go on, it's another Zoom interview this week. These can be erratic in terms of audio quality and take so much time to edit, which is what's slowing down the release of episodes. In recent months, I am getting guests onto WhatsApp audio or mobile to mobile for interviews of which there are a backlog. And in terms of audio quality, these are far better. Zoom, unfortunately, for some reason, has become the go-to medium for podcasts when it should only be used for video. I've done my best with the audio, and I hope that it doesn't undermine what is a fascinating account of Clough and Taylor's time at Brighton. Here's Spencer Vignes. This feels like one of those books that needed to be written, but no one had got around to it. We've had, understandably, so many books on Clough over the years, but none, as far as I know, that have 
just focused on his time at Brighton. Why has this book not been written before? Possibly because I think if anyone was going to write it, it would probably have been me. I'll come back to that in a minute. Uh, that sounds big-headed, but it's really not. And I think really because it was an idea. Well, it wasn't even an idea. It was just something that had been just staring me in the face for a long, long time, many years. And sometimes, you know, you just, you know, you can't, you can't see the wood for the trees. The best ideas are right in front of you, but they're almost too close. I mean, I've been a, I've been a Brighton supporter ever. Well, I'm 51 now. I've been a supporter since I was about eight years old. But I've written a lot about them in the past as a, as a sports writer. I've done a book about them before as well. I've written for the Matchday magazine for, oh, the best part of about 20 years as a feature writer. I'm the guy, I'm the old fogey who basically they get to kind of like do the old down memory lane pieces, you know, um, players who played in the 50s and the 60s and the 70s and the 80s and the 90s. And I love that because I, I just find I've got far more in common um, everything with football back then than football now and VAR and all of this nonsense and whatever. I, I just prefer it the way it was, you know, Bill Shankly kind of, there's 11 men going that way, go that way kind of thing, rather than all these formations and pyramids and stuff and nonsense and whatever. So, I mean, I'd, I got to meet and talk and drink and whatever with quite a lot of the players who were there when Brian Clough was at Brighton and when Peter Taylor was at Brighton as well. And so they told me some fabulous stories, you know, over the years uh, and some not some fabulous stories as well about what it was like working under not just not just Clough, but Taylor as well, because everyone forgets that when Clough disappeared up to up to Leeds, Taylor hung around, you know, and of course, in the damned United, you know, there's that famous bit where where Clough goes back and, and falls on his knees and begs Peter Taylor basically to come up to, uh, you know, forest with him. And it didn't happen like that immediately. You no, know, Peter Taylor stayed at Brighton for two years after Clough disappeared. So, you know, the, uh, during which time they, they seem to have had very little kind of, you know, communication, really, very little contact. And so I, I was talking to one of these players who I know, a left back, uh, Harry Wilson. We were just, you know, talking about Clough. And he had, a, like a lot of the players, he had a bit of a love-hate relationship with, with Clough. And I just finished writing the piece and I was just looking at some of his comments. So I just thought there's more here. There's, there's more, you know, and I think also around the time I was also, you know, you, you say that uh, a lot's been written about Clough before, uh, not so much about the Brighton angle, but I always almost felt as well as though some of it was being, you know, good as it is, most of the stuff that, that's been written about him, a lot, good as it, you know, it, it, it's almost kind of, History has been rewritten a little bit, I think, particularly with this Nottingham, you know, with when he went to Nottingham Forest, you know, the, the story now is, of course, of how he went to this provincial football club who had never done anything before and, you know, took them all the way to Europe. And what he did was brilliant there. But I mean, Nottingham Forest weren't my definition of a provincial football club when he went there. You know, they'd won the FA Cup not so many years beforehand. They finished well up the league. I think a few years before, they come quite close to doing the double. And that, to me, isn't a provincial football club. You know, provincial football club is Southend or Torquay or Yeovil or something like that, or Brighton, as Brighton were back in the 1970s. You know, Brighton hadn't done anything. They, you know, hadn't really been out of the bottom two divisions, never finished higher than the fifth round of the FA Cup. So I just thought, you know, 
this is a story that needs to be told about when Brian Clough really did go to a provincial football club. And guess what? It didn't really work out. Of course, there's also the flip side of it. It's like, well, if he had stayed, what might he, you know, he have achieved? He was never going to stay, I don't think. But the resources were there. The ambition was there. The players were there. And sure enough, you know, a few years later, not that long later, just a few seasons later, Alan Mullery came along and took that team, you know, the basics of that team, he added to it a bit, took it into the top division. And sure enough, in the first season when Brighton were in the top flight, they played Nodding Forest and beat them home and away. So, you know, there is that element of, come on, Cluffy, if he had stayed around, you know, what might have happened? But he was never going to. I knew the basics of this period, but there are things that I wasn't aware of. For instance, Taylor staying on for a second year as a standalone manager, and we'll come to all that later. We'll also come to the fact that by the time the pair of them turn up at Brighton, as you mentioned in Bloody Southerners, they've already had a bit of a low point in their relationship at Derby. So let's talk about November 73. Tell us where Brighton are as a club at that point as Clough and Taylor arrive and just give us a, a brief summary of where Clough and Taylor are in their own careers. Well, Brighton were in a mess. They were facing a relegation battle from the old third division, so what is now kind of League One. They just sacked their manager. But they the one thing they did have in their favour, well, a couple of things. They always had a very good fan base, even when they were diabolical. They were, you know, always likely to get five-figure crowds, you know, sometimes up to 20,000, sometimes 30,000. But the crowds were diving. They were nosediving. But the other thing they had in their favour was they had a very ambitious chairman, a guy called Mike Bamba. And it was his kind of vision. He he wanted Brighton to realise their potential and try and get them up to the top position. And it was his vision and money, dare I say it, because money had quite a bit to do with it, that brought Clough and Taylor down to Brighton. It just so happened that the stars aligned, really. They'd called the bluff of Derby, basically, where they'd been before. They said they were going to offer their resignations, and Derby's chairman famously accepted the resignations. And so they were without a job. And so, you know, they they needed work. I think they hoped that a bigger job would come in. But nothing really did because Clough's reputation by then for shooting his mouth off had gone round all the boardrooms in Britain. And although no, you know, there's no doubt in he was an you know, ambitious and highly thought of, you know, young manager, he was also a loose cannon. And chairmen now, let alone then, don't particularly like loose cannons at their football club. So I think Clough expected them to get some pretty high profile job offers and they didn't really come in. And the other thing is that Cluffy also had um, he had uh, a kind of FA charge hanging over his his head for comments that he'd made in a newspaper about uh, Leeds United and Birmingham City a really you know particularly kind of volatile match and he'd said that Leeds should be you know kicked out of the league and demoted and stuff like this and the FA had charged him with disrepute and if this hearing went against him then potentially he could face a ban of, I can't remember if it was three or five years off the top of my head. but I think it was three. I think it was three. I think you're right. I mean, you know, so if that charge had gone against him, he'd have been banned from being a manager for three years. He didn't have a job. So that meant 
potentially no income coming in, not from football management anyway, for three years. He could have maybe got TV work and stuff like that, but he wouldn't have been a manager for three years and no income. So he needed a job, you know, and I suppose what does a drowning man do before they slip beneath the waves? You just grab the first piece of driftwood or the first life jacket that happens to kind of come within reach. And that was just Brighton that just happened to float past just as he was in danger of kind of slipping beneath the waves. He just grabbed us, really. He grabbed the job offer. Uh, it came at the right time, right place. Which preempts my next question, because at the start of your book, you ask what motivates a man at the top of his game to take a job which appears so monstrously <laughs> beneath him. And I'm guessing that completing the book gave you an answer if you didn't already know. I don't think it did give me an answer. I really honestly don't think it did. I mean, yeah, it is. It's like, I don't know, what would be an analogy today? You think of one, Daniel, for a manager today to jump from, a, you know, kind of being one of the high profile managers and going to manage something like, well, maybe not South End now, but. Well, let's say, let's say Jurgen Klopp won the league last year or whoever won the Champions League and then falls out with the chairman and then he ends up at what is a League One club nowadays. And in the same calendar year as happened with Klopp, goes out to a non-league club with his new League One club. It's. Yeah, I think, I think you're right. Yeah, that would be a good analogy. Let's say Klopp goes from Liverpool, falls out of Liverpool and Bristol Rovers are, I think, fifth bottom or something in League One at the moment, which is, I think, where Brighton were at the time. So. Bristol Rovers make an offer and Klopp accepts and he goes straight down there. And, you know, it's it's like you say now, oh, that wouldn't happen. But it did. It actually did. And it made, you know, I, I mean, you know, now the sports media and sports news and, entertain, you know, it's new entertainment now. So it it wasn't quite everywhere, you know, and on the news and stuff as, as, as much as it would be today. It would be, you know, like the top news agenda now, but it was certainly all over the back pages. It was certainly on the BBC World Service. You know, it was the main sports story of, of the day. But yeah, it was, it's, it's just remarkable. And it made no sense whatsoever until you think, well, you know, yeah, he needed a job. He had this charge over his head. He, uh, the money that Mike Bam, Brighton's chairman, was offering was, you know, was was first division, well, Premier League as it is now, money. So, you know, when you throw all that into the equation, you think, well, maybe it's not so surprising, really. I've forgotten what your question was, Daniel. Now I've you've answered it again. You've answered it. Mike Bamber, <laughs> Mike Bamber was originally Brighton's, he was co-chairman originally, wasn't he, with Len Stringer. Yeah. Stringer yeah. leaves, Bamber becomes sole chairman. I think you've touched on already. He was a he was a, a a flamboyant character, Mike Bamber. Tell us a little about him, how he made his money, and his grand plans for Brighton. He was very Brighton, and I mean that you know Brighton in the sixties and seventies. You know that kind of big cigar, you know by the sea, you know lording it a little bit, but in a nice way. He was a lovely guy. He was a really nice guy. Uh, he'd. Uh, <sighs> He had his fingers in a lot of pies. He was, uh, you know, he's officially listed, I think, as farmer. But he also, he did property developing. He ran a nightclub, which seemed to be a bit of a kind of vanity project, you know, just north of Brighton, where he used to bring entertainers down at Morecambe and Wise and Les Dawson and stuff, and pretty much seemed to pay for them out of their own pocket, really. He, he also became, as you say, originally co-chairman, 
and then chairman of the football club. And he just had this vision. You know, it's Brighton had been like ambling around for what, 70, yeah, just over 70 years of their history and had achieved absolutely, you know, very little really of note. And he just looked at the catchment area, you know, because I mean, all right, you've got Crawley Town down there now, but there used to be only one football club in Sussex. And you've got Crystal Palace to the north. You've got Portsmouth to the west. You've got Gillingham, I suppose, eventually to the east. And to the south, you've got France. There's there's no other club really, you know, near it. And yet you're close enough to London to get there in an hour and a bit or an hour. So I think he just thought, you know, the catchment area here is huge. We can do this and and just set off on on what was a little bit more than a vanity project. You know, he, he was driven. He really wanted to realise these dreams. And and he got there in the end. In 1979, Brighton did get promoted to the, the top flight. But he was a character, definitely a character. And one of those kind of old school chairmen as well, you know, I think now, well, now, you know, so many clubs, are, as we know, you know, they run from boardrooms in Far East or abroad or by, you know, international kind of, you know, folk, you know, who've uh, made their money in oil or whatever or things like that. Whereas back then, 50 years ago, it was very much, you know, the local businessman or a local businessman who ran the football club and, and was the chairman. And he fitted that bill back then. And I think during uh, Clough's time at Brighton, his six or seven months that he was there as manager, Brighton spent more cash than any club outside yeah. Division One, and yeah. including several in Division One. But it does take a while for that spending to come to fruition. Initially, had Bamber underestimated how hard it would be for Brighton to get back into the second division? I don't know, really. Yeah, he was there. It was nine, was it nine months, November 1973 to July 1974. And his, his recruitment was a bit scattergun, to say the least. I think it's the very early evidence that we see of, of what Clough and Taylor would eventually fall out over up at Nodding Forest. You know, you've got Taylor fancies some players, Clough fancies others, and Taylor ends, you know, as, as, at Nottingham Forest, I think it was Peter Taylor ended up bringing in players like, well, Peter Ward from Brighton, for instance, and other players as well. And, and Clough just didn't fancy them. So you've almost, they're almost seen to be, you know, a, a Nottingham Forest on different paths, slightly in terms of their vision of the players that they need. And I think that was there at, at Brighton. Some of their, their purchases came off. Others just didn't at all. And I think that was partly to do with the fact that maybe Clough just wasn't there a lot of the time at Brighton. You know, he was, he'd go down for matches and then just disappear up the M1, you know, as soon as the, the final whistle had gone. He'd do his post-match press conference and he wouldn't see him for smoke. Some weekends he wasn't there at all. I mean, there was one famous weekend. He, uh, instead of taking charge of the team, he, um, he disappeared off to, um, New York. Yes. To watch Muhammad Ali at Madison Square Garden. You know, on a on a kind of junket over there, you know, on a jolly. There was another one. Funny enough, it's the anniversary of it today that he flew out to Iran. They made him a job offer as well. I mean, was he serious? You never really knew with Puff. You know, did he really think about going and becoming Iran's manager or not? And of course, he treated Brighton dreadfully during this. I mean, I mean, you know, in particular Bamba, because I mean, Bamba was a good, good chairman who gave him everything he wanted to, as you say, Daniel. You know, money. It wasn't a problem for strengthening the team, whatever. 
So, I mean, you know, he repaid him by mucking around a lot and flirting with other potential job offers and treating Bamba pretty badly. And to be fair, in later life, in his autobiographies, he does say in that that he let down the best chairman that he ever had. He does actually call him the best chairman that he ever had, Mike Bamba, and that he did let him down and that, you know, I, I think, you know, Let's face it, Clough. Did he ever have any regrets? I don't know, but it's as close a regret as I think I've ever seen him come out with. Is that, you know, he didn't regret leaving Brighton so much, but he regretted letting Bamba down. There, there's that quote from Clough that achieving success at Brighton was like asking Lester Piggott to win the derby on a, a Skegness donkey. And it seems that from the beginning, Clough failed to acknowledge, let alone appreciate, just failed to acknowledge that there was potential at Brighton. Yeah. Yeah, you're right. You're right. It's a great quote, that, as well. It is marvellous. And funnily enough, in the book, there's one bit towards the end where Alan Mullery, who is the, you know, the man who came in and inherited the Skegness donkey and actually got to win the derby. Well, not win the derby, but, you know, finish the derby at least, you know, and got them into the top five. He's like, well, you know, he was never serious about it and his loss was my gain. But it is interesting, kind of going back a little bit, to what you said before about their recruitment. And it's, 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 it's interesting that once Clough did jump ship from Brighton and Taylor was in there on his own, Taylor's recruitment was far better than Clough's had been. It was Peter Taylor who brought in players like, um, like Peter Ward, who would later go to Nottingham Forest. And, you know, Ward is probably now held up as like the number one legend of ex-Brighton players, you know, just remarkably popular player. And also Brian Horton, who a lot of people will have heard of now. Taylor brought Brian Horton in from uh, Port Vale. And Brian is, um, he's held as probably our, our best captain that we've ever had as well. And funnily enough, you know, so he, he brought, yeah, uh, Peter Ward, Brian Horton, many other players in. And Peter and Brian were still in that Brighton side that ended up getting promoted to the top flight. So, you know, these weren't the kind of players necessarily you, you buy for a season and then ditch the following year to get better players in to get you up again. They were players who were in for the long haul. You know, Peter saw their potential and thought, no, you're good enough to stick with us and come right the way through the divisions. And that's what they did. So I think there was something about Peter's recruitment that I think what's that quote, Peter, you know, Brian often said that, Peter, you're the man in the back of the shop kind of doing all of this and I'm kind of the, the salesman out front. But, you know, sometimes it's the guy in the in the cupboard behind doing the stock taking and whatever who knows what he needs. And Taylor seemed to know what they needed. The Clough-Taylor era gets off to a curious start. They arrive at the White Hart. Is that a hotel or a pub where they arrive uh, to meet the players? A, it's a hotel with a big bar, basically, okay. in Lewis. They, in Lewis, if anyone knows it, yeah. They meet the players there for the first time, and it's a very odd meeting, isn't it? Yeah, just a bit. They um, The meeting was on a Friday. I think word had gone round on Thursday that Clough and Taylor were going to take over. Basically, everything happened so fast. It was like earlier that week. I think most of the Brighton's players were expecting a kind of third division appointment. John Vinicom, the local um, the local Brighton reporter on the evening, I guess he speculated that, uh, that Clough you know, might come down. I think it was guesswork rather than, you know, any kind of intelligence or in intelligence the ad from the club. But anyway, um, that was on about Tuesday or Wednesday. The Thursday it was confirmed. And Friday, Clough and Taylor said they wanted to meet the rest of the players at the White Hart, this, um, this yeah, a hotel in, in Lewis in Sussex. 
they said they were going to turn up, you know, for dinner. And of course, you know, they were late and the players had finished dinner. And I, I don't think they kind of, you know, gone too merry on the sauce because they were all dead nervous of meeting Clough, really. The nerves were jangling a little bit. And then out of the blue, the two of them show up. And I think the song that was playing through the, the hotel's intercom as they showed up was If I Ruled the World by Harry Seacombe. <laughs> Complete coincidence, but a couple of the players said they will never, ever forget that. It's like of all the songs that could be playing over the intercom as Clough walks in all of a sudden, it's that one. And they had this very surreal evening where Clough introduces himself and, and Peter and then asks what they want to drink. And this is a Friday night, the night before a game. And even in 1973, players didn't drink the night before a game. Most players did. Maybe early in the week, but not then. So they're sitting there, the players thinking, well, is this some kind of catch, you know, or some kind of test? And most of them, you know, it's like they're like, oh, I'll have an orange juice, boss. I'll have an orange juice. And then the clubs, you know, he's like, no, you know, I mean a drink. So a couple of them kind of say, uh, oh, I'll have a half a lager. I'll have a half a lager. But not all of them do. And yeah, there's a feeling that they don't really know whether, you know, they're being tested a bit or quizzed or whatever. And then, of course, he goes around the room and starts picking on their hair a little bit because this is 1973 and Mott the Hoople and Queen are all the rage and stuff like that. So, you know, a few of the players have got kind of collar length hair. You know, one of the players, John Vinicom, not John, John Vinicom, John Templeman, sorry. He ends up referring to him as Shirley Temple because he had kind of long collar length blonde locks so it was this very uneasy strange strange meeting the night before a game and then of course they had to go out the following day and try and kind of please him show what they can do and of course they failed miserably it was like a nil nil draw against york although this was york who had a decent side then not the york so much now who are in what fifth tier i think now i think so yeah. i miss york come back york city i miss you it used to be a great away day york city so, yeah, it was a nil-nil and, you know, there's a big crowd and all the media were there. I think there was more press there than there was fans, probably. But, um, yeah, it was a complete anti-climax. Clough's doubts from the beginning weren't really centred on the money because the money was there. It was the location, really, from the beginning that seemed to bother him more than anything. Yeah, it's a bit, I think it's a bit in the film version of The Damned United when they first arrive in Brighton and they get out of the car and they're walking along the front and, you know, to Michael Sheen, isn't it, turns to Timothy Spall and says something like, you know, these aren't our people, you know, bloody Southerners. And a couple of the players who I'd spoken to had said, you know, that's what he did refer to us as, you know, but you should say bloody Southerners, you know, these aren't our people and whatever. That's where the title of the book ended up coming from. And one of the players, it's funny, who'd been there before Clough and Taylor and outlasted them by many, many years and played in the top flight for Brighton, a guy called Peter O'Sullivan. Lovely guy, great player, fabulous left foot. And I mean, he said he was surprised, really, that Cluffy even went to Derby and Nottingham Forest. You know, it was like that was about as far south as he would ever go. You know, he was very much a kind of teesider. He was a northerner. You know, he, he wasn't a southerner at all. And, he just didn't want to be there. He never bought a house in the area. He said he was house hunting, but I don't think he was ever really serious about that. But Peter Listen Taylor does buy a house within a couple of weeks, doesn't he? Peter Taylor yeah. embraces, embraces yeah. the area. Yeah. He, you know, goes to kind of, you know, put down roots and yeah, gets a flat on the seafront in Hove and yeah, he makes it home. He stays there. He's there. He's present. And Clough just isn't really, you know, I, I think one of the mistakes maybe that 
Mike Bamber, you know, the chairman made was indulging Clough a little bit and saying, look, he can carry on with his newspaper columns. He can carry on with his TV work. You know, I think on one hand, Bamber was, was conscious of publicity. He thought, well, any publicity is good for Brighton. You know, whatever Clough does, you know, it's like Brian Clough, manager of Brighton. And on the one hand, yeah, that's good. But of course, all the time where he's off gallivanting, doing other bits and pieces, he's not at the club. He's not being a manager. You know, and of course, it's very different now. Managers then, you know, they were very visible. They had to be very present. You know, they were there watching the first team, the reserve team, the youth team. He just wasn't there. How were Bamber and Brighton, what was the plan to afford this? Was Were their hopes entirely reliant on bumper crowds and more gate yeah. money? Because yeah. that, does, that doesn't work out, does it, strangely, with Clough? They're still not getting that 20,000 consistently that season. No, well, that's that's kind of the thing. They needed, I think, you know, Bamba had done his maths and seemed to think the club needed 20,000 for home games to be able to, you know, afford the whole operation. And you've got to remember, you know, it was big money for those days, but it was pin money compared to what we're kind of talking about today. And, yeah, the crowds just... I think it's interesting, you know, the, the crowds before Clough and Taylor came were very high, quite often 20, 25, 30,000 sometimes. And after they left, they went back up as well. It's almost as though a lot of supporters just felt they didn't trust them or kind of, you know, the jury was out. It was like, well, let's wait and see what they do. And then we'll kind of, you know, reserve judgment and then we'll decide. And a lot of them voted with their feet and just didn't come. And yeah, they did make quite a big loss that year. I don't know how much, but I know that, you know, it, it, it didn't work out financially the way that, um, that Bamba wanted it to. But then, of course, Clough leaves. Taylor takes over. The form starts getting better. Not so much the first season, but the second season in particular. And the crowds just shoot back up again. And that, of course, underwrites the losses. So it starts offsetting itself. Uh, but you're right. No, that season, the crowds, I don't think they hit 20,000 for one game. What kind of team had they inherited? You'd just been relegated, hadn't you, the previous year? Yeah, it was, um, it was a good team. Well, I'd say it was a good team. It was a good team, 71, 72, that had got promoted to the top, uh, not the top, like to what's the championship today, like the old division two. But, I think like some teams, you know, you go up, you do all right, then you get a few losses and you can't break the kind of chain of defeats. And I think uh, a lot of them have got demoralised uh, or were struggling for, uh, for for confidence. And Clough didn't exactly help that. You know, he went in and rather than kind of putting an arm around the shoulders and trying to big up their confidence and kind of improve them, he just shot a lot of them, particularly the older players, to pieces. The older players, you know, I mean, that's one thing I noticed. The older players did not have a lot of time for him at all, probably because he didn't have a lot of time for them. It was the younger players in particular that that Clough was pretty good with. And, you know, speaking to the younger, well, they're not younger players now. Of course they're not. They're not younger men now either. But, um, but you know, they remember him far more fondly. They remember him as being more encouraging. You know, so if you were kind of, 20 or 21 at Brighton at that time and you were enthusiastic and you had a degree of talent then you probably look back on Clough and you remember him pretty fondly if you were kind of in your early 30s and you'd struggled a little bit the previous season and uh, you were struggling for form Clough wasn't the kind of manager who you wanted around he wasn't going to rescue for your career 
he was going to bomb you out. He doesn't mess around uh, as soon as he arrives. Um, I think Eddie Spirit, who's your captain at the time, yeah. 200 appearances, loses the captaincy to Norman Gall, who's appointed captain simply because he's a Geordie. Yeah, yeah. And that's, you know, you've, obviously I couldn't, I couldn't ask Clough, you know, if that was true or not, because, of course, he's not with us anymore, but Norman is. And uh, Norman was, uh, yeah, he's from Gateshead. And I think, you know, Cluffy seems to have had one look around the dressing room and the man with the northeast accent he naturally, you know, gravitates to. And Norman, yeah, he wasn't a spring chicken then. I can't remember how old exactly. He would have been early 30s, maybe 30, 31. But he was about the one older player to start with who got on well with him. And he was made captain, yeah, purely because of his accent. Although even Gaul fell out with him in the end as well. Gaul tells you a really interesting story that maybe reveals something about Clough. And it's something he shares with Clough. I think it's a, it's an England under-23 game at Newcastle. Gaul is a kid at the time. Yeah. And he's gone there with his friends to see the England players. They're coming out. They're trying to get some autographs. And Clough is the only one that doesn't sign. And Gaul reminds him of this, doesn't he? Yeah, he reminds him of it and says that he followed Clough all around Newcastle that day from place to place, hoping that he will sign and he just doesn't sign. And I think, yeah, I'm trying to remember the line. There was one line in particular. It was, you might remember, oh, what was it? You might remember it. If you I, th- I, I think Clough says something along the lines of, I wasn't a, a nice guy. I'm paraphrasing here. It's, it's a lot stronger says, than no, that. No, I wasn't. Yeah. He says, I think it's like, you know, was I a nice guy? And he says, no, you weren't. And he says, no, you're right or something. But yeah, Gaul just did follow him all around. Newcastle, you know, he's just a little lad and he just he just wouldn't sign, repeatedly just wouldn't sign. And of course Clough's got no memory of that whatsoever, but knows that he's probably right in the kind of thing he would have done. They do inherit some some interesting players. You mentioned is it Peter Sullivan or Peter O'Sullivan? Peter O'Sullivan, yeah. Peter O'Sullivan is on the transfer list when Clough and Taylor arrive, and he's a player who spends the overwhelming majority of his career at Brighton during which they're not in the top flight, but arguably a player who was good enough to play in the top flight. Yeah, he was an ex-Manchester United kid. He was he was at Manchester United when um, Bobby Charlton was there, when George Best was there. And he didn't make it at United. And he, um, he went out and went on trial to a couple of clubs. He was down at Bristol City having a bit of a trial there. And on the, one of the pitches next door was the England, would have been England 1970 team, preparing to, to head out to Mexico. Bobby Charlton's on the pitch next door and comes over and goes, well, what are you doing here? And Peter says, well, I'm not getting anywhere, you know, United. I'm having a look around some other clubs. And, and Bobby Charlton actually says to Pete, he says, well, well, you know, why don't you go down to Brighton? You know, uh, Freddie Goodwin is the manager down there. He's, he's a, a good friend of mine. I think Peter had mentioned that Brighton were one of the clubs who possibly, you know, like were interested. Bobby said, no, go down there, have a look around, you know. Freddie's good, you know, you might, um, you might like him. So Peter gets on the train and goes down to Brighton and never leaves. He still lives down there, basically. He's never left. And he was a tremendous player, absolutely tremendous. I think really he could have played at a higher level earlier. By the time that Brighton got into the top flight, you know, he, he'd already been a professional footballer for about 10 years. And although he was very good, Still at that level, you know, it's, it's maybe if, if he had have gone up earlier in his career, maybe he would have made a, 
you know, more of a splash. But he's a he's he, he won't be afraid of me saying this. He's a very very laid back character, Pete, and I think that can be his blessing and maybe his curse. But he's a lovely guy to spend time with, and uh, I think he took the attitude that he has to life to his football as well, and I mean that in the best possible sense. He's a lovely guy, but uh, yeah, he made it in the end. You know, so he got two seasons, I think, before he finally left Brighton in the top flight, which is two more than most of us do. Your book at times, particularly during the Clough spell there, reads like a cartoon. Uh, there, there are some really strange incidents. You've got Brian Clough, who's not always at training. There's a, there's a, a guy, John Sheridan, looking after the team. Uh, not for, that John, yeah, not yeah. that John Sheridan, another one, yeah. But yeah. For, for much of the week, there's an incident that just reinforces how unusual Clough and Taylor were as a pair. It's one day after training, Clough, Taylor, Taylor's dog, and the club secretary get a lift off some young player. Um, Tony Towner, yeah. yeah. Yeah, who's just passed his driving he's test. just passed his driving test, yeah. Tell us yeah. how that worked out. Well, it's just, I, th- I think... Tony Towner was at the Goldstone ground with his car and his new driving license. And uh, at that time, Brighton used to train up by Brighton University or alternatively kind of in the, in the park amongst all the dog crap and everything like that over the road from the Goldstone. But this time they're training up at university and, and Tony's going to get in his car and Brian comes running across and says, hang on a minute, give me a lift. And then the club secretary runs across and says, hang on a minute, give me a lift. And then Peter Taylor runs across this, hang on, give me a lift and his dog. And they all get into the car. It sounds like something like wacky races. Yes. And the anthill mob, except I think it was an old Hillman in chugging through Brighton as, you know, as anyone who's ever been to Brighton will know, it's a very hilly place up and down and up and down. And they finally kind of crawl at the walking pace up towards like the training ground. And Tony goes to turn left off the main road into the drive going up towards the training ground, misses and just hits the curb. And the dog and Peter Taylor and the club secretary come over the top, you know, because seats in cars, you're probably not old enough to remember, Daniel, but seats used to tip forward, which is just, you know, complete health and safety nightmare. So all the seats tip forward or everybody falls all over each other and Clough just gives Tony a look, you know, kind of, how long have you been driving? Tony Towner says about two weeks and he's like, never give me a lift again. As you said, it is just kind of, you couldn't make, couldn't make it up. At what point does Clough begin to suspect he's made a mighty mistake taken on the job? Probably day one, I would think. Was his heart ever in it? Probably no. It would have been interesting to see if, if Brighton had done well and had won games and had soared up the league and maybe won promotion, would he have stayed? But they didn't. They just kind of ambled along. I, th- I think he lifted them from about 18th to about 9th at one point. And because he hasn't got his heart and soul in it, they're not really setting the world on fire. So I, I think, you know, constantly he's got his look, you know, he's got his eyes open to kind of other opportunities. You know, there's the one we just mentioned, you know, about Iran or whether that was serious or not. I haven't got a clue. And then, of course, the season finishes and he's still there and everybody goes away for the summer. And uh, they actually went on tour. They went out to Mallorca, which was, you know, one of Clough and Taylor's kind of favourite bolt holes. I think it's one of the few places that Clough would actually dare fly to. He wasn't a good flyer, but he'd go to Mallorca. So they go out to Mallorca, do a, you know, post-season tour, come home. And that's the last the players see of him at Gatwick Airport, I think. You know, it's like they go their separate ways and that's that. 
and then obviously Leeds appear, you know, during that season. He's meant to he's meant to come back for pre-season training for the following season and he's late and he's delaying and I think that's when Mike Bamber smells a rat and of course off he goes. And that season, that that first season under Clough, they'd finished pretty low down the table in the end, hadn't they? Yeah, they finished, they were low down and then I think they got up to about ninth and then they dropped again at the end. They lost their last few games. Back then, of course, the fabulous thing was that, you know, today clubs tend to finish their programs on the same day, you know, the final day of the season. Everyone will kick off at three o'clock and everyone will finish at, you know, a given time. Whereas, of course, back then you had teams finishing on different weeks, let alone different days. I think Brighton actually played their last game and finished 14th, but over the next week or two, other clubs kind of finished their programs and Brighton just slipped down and slipped down. They were never going to go down. But they were, you know, I, I think pretty much ended up where he'd taken them over. They went up, went down, but, you know, they were safe. But that's not exactly what the Brighton public wanted, you know, safety. They wanted something else. He's also by then been cleared uh, by the FA. So he's no longer got that threat of being banned for three years hanging over him. Was that the point really that maybe Mike Bamber starts worrying that Clough isn't going to hang around? I don't know whether Bamba just thought, well, for every week he's around, it's just an added bonus. You know, I suppose it would be almost like if, if Julia Roberts kind of became your girlfriend, you'd solve something, or my girlfriend anyway. You know, you think, well, you know, for every day that she's around, this, this is just going to be a massive bonus, and I can't believe it. But at some point, you know, she will go. She will see the light and go. It, it does feel I like think- that. <laughs> I mean, in in the sense that Mike Bamba is a successful man in his own right. He's wealthy, and yet he's letting Clough in those seven, eight months just get away with so much. Get away with murder, yeah. And I I think at some point, you know, he he must have thought the way he was behaving well at some point. I I think there is a stage, I think after the Iran farce, uh, when Clough finally gets back, Bamba does lose his rag and say, look, you know, this can't go on. You know, you're treating me like a monk. You're getting paid handsomely here. Behave yourself. And Clough almost seems to actually do what he's told for a while and knuckles down and he's there more at training and he's there at the games and he's far more present. And Brighton actually went on a good little run then. I think, you know, March, April kind of time. Seems to be treating it seriously. But then, of course, the end of the season happens and they're not going to go up. They're not going to go down. You lose interest again. And then the summer comes and before you know it, he's out in New Yorker and Leeds turn up. And I think he was always looking for that route back to the big time. And of course, it's been well documented, you know, by, by others, of course, you know, that Leeds were, you know, it was, it was Europe again and everything like that. But maybe, yeah, his choice of club, given everything that he'd said about Leeds, you know, in the years beforehand. I mean, that was the surprising thing, wasn't it? Of course, it didn't work out there either, did it? Still to come on when shorts were short. And also proving it was a big thing for Peter as well, because I think one of the big things about staying with Brighton was, yeah, he loved the area and he loved the club, but he wanted to show people that he wasn't just Brian Clough's right-hand man. Thank you for downloading When Shorts Were Short. You might be interested in supporting the show's Patreon page. Supporters will get each new episode a fortnight early, as well as bonus episodes exclusive to patrons. Show your support for the podcast at patreon.com forward slash shorts were short.
Your support for the podcast is appreciated. If the shorts weren't short, we don't talk about it. On the Iran thing, Bamba had really, that, that's the moment where Bamba really seemed to have enough and, and held Taylor and Clough to their contracts. And there's a press conference afterwards because the media have got wind of yeah. the link with Iran. And uh, Clough then reveals that he does have ambitions to manage internationally. You mentioned that he's in New York for the Fraser Ali fight. He's also at one point on the verge of going, I think, to the West Indies to watch the cricket. Yeah. After that run of form that you just mentioned, things uh, take a nosedive again. Edward Heath has called a general election and Clough's yeah. up in the Midlands helping his local MP campaigning. Yeah, yeah. He, his, his mind just wasn't on the job. It's as safe as that. I, th- I think I might be jumping the gun to one of your next questions, Daniel. I'm sorry if I do this, but I, I think his legacy in terms of Brighton is that he put them on the map. And that is, you know, he, he put the club on the map and, you know, people maybe in other parts of the world who hadn't heard of Brighton and Hope Albion before, you know, had heard of them. And, you know, they were able to get up to the top, you know, flight in time under Alan Mullery. And they became a, you know, they're, they're not one of the biggest clubs in the world, but they're certainly a lot bigger now than they were in 1973. You know, they've got a bigger profile now. And a lot of that is down to Clough. He started it. He started the ball rolling. But at the time, you know, that, that's about the best thing that you can say in terms of what he contributed to Brighton and Hove Albion's history, you know, putting him on the map, because he certainly didn't really contribute that much when he was down there. Meantime, when Clough is ready to go to Leeds, Taylor refuses to go because he doesn't like the way the Leeds chairman, Manny Cousins, talks to him. Yeah. And Taylor felt that he owed Bamba something and that Clough didn't necessarily feel that, but Taylor felt that that he owed yeah. Bamba and we, Brighton. Yeah, yeah, you, you're right, Daniel. I mean, Taylor said, no, we've signed contracts. Taylor liked, you know, he liked being by the seaside. He realised that, you know, as you said, you know, we, we were just saying just back then, weren't we, that uh, he bought the house, he put down roots, you know, he, he liked the area. He, he could see the vision. He could see where Brighton could potentially go and was willing to put in the hard yards whereas Clough just wasn't really and I think the other thing was that I think Peter felt a bit taken for granted in the whole thing it's almost like Leeds take for granted that they're going to get Taylor as well as Clough Leeds think when they um, announce the press conference which is funny enough is in a home you know they don't announce it back up in Leeds they announce it on Brighton's doorstep in a hotel just around the corner I mean that's pretty ungracious really as well and I mean, they're going to unveil Clough. And just as they're about to unveil Clough, Taylor just goes to him, I'm not going. And Clough realises if Leeds' chairman gets wind of this, then basically, you know, potentially the job offer could be off. So quickly, you know, Clough being Clough, takes matters into his own hands, marches into the press conference and said, you know, ladies and gentlemen, I am now the new manager of Leeds before Leeds can potentially pull the plug on it because they realise that Taylor isn't going to be part of the deal. And to be fair to Leeds, they seem to have concerns about Taylor not going because you mentioned in Bloody Southerners that Cousins worries whether Clough can do the job without Taylor. And he asks this, uh, he asks Mike Bamber, and I think Clough maybe overhears this and that's when he just... That's 
that's when he get yeah that's when he storms into the press conference and basically says here I am I'm the new manager of Leeds before matters can kind of take another twist yeah Leeds thought they were getting Taylor they thought you know they came as a as a duo would Leeds have pulled the plug if they realised that they they weren't going to get Taylor and if Clough hadn't made his move in the press conference I don't know not sure. Peter O'Sullivan tells you that under Taylor, Brighton start to recruit better players. The first game of the new season, Brighton are at home to Palace. 26,000 show up, brilliant attendance. And Taylor is making an effort with the fans. He's writing the programme notes. The coach, the new coach is Jerry Clark. He's come from Chesterfield. Brighton win 1-0. People, myself included up until this point, tend to think that Brighton-Palace rivalry. I thought it started with that controversial 76-77 FA Cup tie, but you're saying it starts at this point. Well, I think it had been there it had been there beforehand a little bit as well. Um, purely because I think, you know, they were two clubs that had been in the old Division Three South, which was full of northern clubs and, you know, I mean forty miles apart or whatever. And so, you know, there'd been a little bit of a rivalry before and there was at the, the opening day of that seventy four, seventy five season, there was crowd trouble that day. So yeah, they'd been there for a while, but you're right. I mean it, it went up several several notches when Venables was in charge and when Alan Mullery was in charge and I mean that's the kind of rivalry that we that was there then and we know today it was pretty nasty and pretty spiteful I think after the game that day you know that, that was just the sound of oh, a bit like you and your living room there with police cars going past <laughs> yes that was the sound in the press conference afterwards was the sound of police cars going around the local streets you know trying to split up fighting fans so it was yeah as you say it was there before that famous incident in 1977 but it just wasn't quite as intense just a couple of days before the start of the season Clough who's already struggling at Leeds as you've said he calls Taylor at 2am in tears what was going on at that point I think he just felt he couldn't do the job at Leeds without him you know he wants him to go with him and I think that's in the film version of the Damned United as well you know he phones and he's in his hotel up in Leeds and he's like come on Pete you know we can do this and Pete's just like no, you know, I'm I'm all right. I'm fine here. You know, my my conscience is clear. I want to stay and make a go of it. And I think that was the last time they spoke for quite a while. I think people think, you know, well, we talked about this earlier, you know, that they were in constant contact, but they weren't really. You know, Clough was busy doing his thing and Taylor was busy doing his thing. You know, they didn't stop and chat about a lot else apart from football. There'd also no. been um, some... Well, a, a minor rupture in that Clough Taylor relationship towards the end at Derby. I think you mentioned that Taylor had a heart murmur and was in hospital for six weeks. Clough only visited him once, and yeah. Taylor wasn't yeah. happy about that. Then there were issues over money, so they've money had their was, problems. Yeah, money was money was a big thing as well. I mean, uh, as you say, yeah, it was. It was. I think what had been rumbling at Derby. Um, kind of went up a level of Brighton. You know, they weren't happy towards the end. You know, I mean, Clough was pretty cross that, you know, Taylor stayed. And it cut both ways, of course, because, you know, Taylor felt that Clough was just running off and betraying Brighton and, um, and Mike Bamber's trust and generosity. So, yeah, it had been rumbling around for a while. Money was a big thing with, with the two of them. I mean, I mean, Clough often used to say, well, you'll get people with the right amount of money and stuff and whatever, but it cut both ways as well. Brighton was as, you know, Fair enough, you want to be paid what you think your market value is. But yeah, as you say, it had been rumbling around at Derby. It went up another level at Brighton. 
maybe you know the fact that they then didn't work together you know for about another two two and a half years maybe things cooled to the point where by the time they did re reunite at forest and of course enjoyed their glory glory days there you know when you're having success you know and everything and winning pots left right and center you're not going to fall out are you but I think when the winds start coming and, you know, will stop coming and, um, and yeah, things got a little bit harder. That's when it fell out again. And yet when Leeds get rid of Clough, Bamba briefly considers the possibility of bringing Clough back, which would have been staggering. Yeah, I don't think, I don't know if that was a, ever really serious. I mean, yeah, given, given the way that Clough had treated Brighton and particularly, you know, as you said, with, uh, with Bamba's generosity, I mean, I can understand why he thought about it, you know, give a man an opportunity to at least kind of say, look, I made a mistake. I shouldn't have gone to Leeds. I will come back and I will knuckle down and I will get on with the job that I promised I would do. But, you know, he realized that Pete was far more loyal and was there for the long haul. And and I think by then as well, you know, Brighton had won the, they weren't setting the world on fire at the beginning of that season, but they won their opening game. And all the evidence was that, well, we can probably do quite well without Clough. Why should I spend the extra money on him and his indulgences and whatever when I've got one month, one, you know, manager who's doing quite all right? Thank you very much. 74-75, Peter Taylor in the program notes for that first game against uh, Palace had said the ambition was the third division title, which, I mean, that season definitely didn't work out. But the I think the home form that year was very strong, wasn't it? But it was the away form that let them down. Yeah, home form. Yeah, home form was brilliant. I mean, Brighton's home form for most of the 70s, from about 74, 75 up to when they, 1979, when they got promoted to the top flight. I mean, it was just, they were pretty much invincible at home, you know, maybe losing like one game a season, maybe a couple every now and then. But they hardly drew any games either. It was nearly all victories. At one stage, I mean, that season, 74, 75, you know, they weren't too far off. The relegation zone. I think, you know, they had to win two of their last home games to kind of make sure they were safe. And they did that. And then the following year, that's when the, the boosters really turn on. At one point, they looked like the following year, what that 75, 76, they looked shoe wins to go up at that point, but fell away towards the end. They, um, lost at Millwall 3-1 and Mill, one of their big promotion rivals. And, I think that just taken seems to have taken the, the wind out of Taylor's sails a little bit. I think he'd set his heart on going up and also proving it was a big thing for Peter as well, because I think one of the big things about staying with Brighton was, yeah, he loved the area and he loved the club, but he wanted to show people that he wasn't just Brian Clough's right-hand man. You know, he wanted to show people that he could achieve success on his own, you know, as a manager. And he came very, very close that season. Three go up, they finish fourth. By the time that season ends, he's thrown in a very young Peter Ward, who I think really shows his promise with six goals in eight games. And suddenly Brighton have this new young star. Clough by then has been at Forest for, I think, 18 months. Is there any inkling at the end of the season, certainly at Bamber's end, that Taylor isn't coming back? No, there doesn't seem to be at all. I think, uh, you know, everyone goes their separate ways, you know, as they do at the end of the season. Bamba fully expects Peter to come back. And then, you know, Peter reports late back for pre-season training or the day that pre-season training is meant to start. He's not there. And I think that's when Mike Bamba seems to think, oh, hang on a minute, something's going on here. And all of a sudden, you know, Clough has turned up in Mallorca. He's tracked Peter down to Mallorca. And that's the bit 
which they kind of try to recreate in um in the damned united in the film you know where he tries to track him down and everything and then he says you know come on come and work with me and whatever and he just twists his arm really i think in the end it's like come on we can do this you know and then also he falls on his sword a little bit and says i'm nothing without you I don't think he falls on his knees like he does in the film, but you know, it, it is almost like, look, you know, you didn't get promotion at Brighton. I'm going nowhere at Forest, but together we could do a lot at Forest. And so, yeah, so Taylor goes. It wasn't a straightforward meeting, though, was it? There was a third party involved, I think, who approaches Taylor to see if he'd speak to Clough. And I think Taylor makes it clear that Clough has to make the first move. Yes. Typical Clough Taylor stuff, isn't it? Really, I think there was um, there was a few bods involved, varying from a kind of a local postmaster in the East Midlands to um, somebody at Nottingham Forest. I think Clough ends up having a meeting with, I think somebody who's on. Um, I try to remember somebody. They have a meeting at a cricket club, and uh, a Clough at one point, you know, he, t- he turns to somebody at this cricket club and basically um, he says he's off to Mallorca to fetch Taylor. You know, no one quite believes him, but, um, you know, it turns out, well, I, I think Brian had had word through this kind of, I think somebody who ran a post office in, was it Burton on Trent? I think something like that. He had word that Taylor might be just be interested. But I couldn't get to the bottom of that because, I mean, you know, Peter's been dead since 1990. I would have loved to have asked, you know, his side of events and found out exactly maybe how he found out that Clough was maybe, you know, going to try and kind of work with him again a lot of it is all speculation that bit you know we don't really know all we know is that basically um it, it came as a bolt out of the blue for for brighton and for for uh, mike bamba because nobody expected him to go he'd had a good season you know they were doing well he blooded peter, you know, peter ward and brian horton was there and you know he got the team playing well so why would he want to leave alan mallory comes in and yeah. uh, after Alex Stock stays on as Fulham manager and Mullery goes on to get Brighton promoted that the following season, almost gets them up in 78, a year before he eventually does. That first promotion in 77, how much of that was down to the foundations perhaps laid by Taylor? Oh, a lot. A lot. Basically, I, th- I think that season in particular, Alan Mullery tinkers a little bit. He, you know, um, he, he brings. Well, Steve Piper, who was a young defender, he moves Steve Piper up to midfield from defence and he decides to start with Peter Ward up front, who he, he had no knowledge of when he became Brighton's manager. He was just a skinny little whippet in the reserves. He didn't know him from Adam, but he saw him in a training game and thought, yeah, you're for me. And he drops Fred Binney, who was one of Brighton's centre forwards, who got about 25 goals the previous season, drops him and brings Ward in instead. He just tinkers with that side a little bit, Alan Mullery does. But it's essentially then, it's, it's Peter Taylor's side that Mullery takes to up to the next flight. And then, of course, or the next level. Then, of course, he builds on that and brings in, um, you know, a couple of extra good plays. I mean, one of them was Mark Lawrence. So you can't really say completely that it's Peter Taylor and Brian Clough's team that Mullery guides to the top flight because he does add players like that. But on the other hand, you know, in the Brighton team that finally made it to the old first division, the Premier League, as it is now in 1979. Yeah, Peter Ward's there, who was bought by Taylor. Brian Horton's there, who was bought by Taylor. Peter O'Sullivan's still there, who was there from beforehand. There's about four or five players, you know, who've 
either predate Clough and Taylor or were bought by them. So, yeah, he laid the foundations without a doubt. So we're done with the Clough and Taylor part of this uh, Brighton episode. But in wrapping up, I think we need to follow Mike Bamber's story to the end because it ends sadly in more ways than one. And he's, he's a man who did a lot for the club. The problems for for Bamber and Brighton really start around late 1980. By then, you're in Division One. Bamber wants to expand the Goldstone Ground. Mullery wants any available money to go into the team. How realistic was a compromise between the pair? Quite unlikely, really. I mean, it, it's a hard one. I I, I think um, it's fair to say they had their differences before they finally kind of fell out. But in the end, yeah, it, it, I, I think Mike's tendency to kind of like the limelight, do things his way, rub Mullery up the wrong way. Mullery was kind of old school manager where, you know, he wants to do things his way. He wants any spare cash to go into strengthening the team, not kind of expanding the ground, which was pretty ramshackle at the time. But most grounds were in about 1979, 1980. And yeah, funnily enough, actually, it was the sale of Mark Lawrence to Liverpool that broke the camel's back in the end. Um, Just before that, is it the, the vice chairman, Harry Bloom? He was an yeah, Harry Bloom. He was an important buffer between the feud in he was He was the buffer. Yeah, Harry Bloom, it was, yeah, I should have pointed that out. Harry Bloom was always kind of like, yeah, he was, he was yeah, the buffer. I think Alan Mullery uses the term the buffer between the two of them. And poor Harry, he um, he dies on the day of a game up at Stoke City, actually. The team had just kind of... Um, taking the train up from um, from the south up to Stoke, and they get off the uh, train and they get onto the bus to take them to what used to be the Victoria ground. Harry has a Harry Bloom has a heart attack there and then on the coach. And without Harry being there, the buffer that had been there between the two men had gone. They started clashing more frequently. And yeah, that was kind of like the end of time of Mullery's time at the club. You mentioned the Lawrenson, the Mullery resigns over the Lawrenson deal. I wanted to ask you about that because Mullery has agreed a deal with Ron Atkinson for 400,000 and two United two players. players. Yeah, yeah. But what I wanted to ask you though, Mike Bamber gets 900,000 pounds for Mark Lawrenson. I don't know if Jimmy Case is part of the same deal or if that's a separate deal from Liverpool. That's a, se- that's a separate okay. deal. Yeah, so, yeah. £900,000 for a player who really, looking back, would have been worth even more than that because he was just, Mark Lawrenson was an incredible centre-half. Where's your sympathy lie there? Because both deals were good. Yeah, both were good. I think they were both in the right. That was the hard thing, but they they weren't on the same page. I mean, as you say, no, Mullery had met Dave Sexton. No, it wasn't Dave Sexton. Atkinson. Atkinson At, um, yeah, the PFA dinner. And they'd pretty much done the deal there and then. And the following day, of course, yeah, as you say, you know, Alan goes into the Goldston ground and says, right, I've done a deal. And Mike Bamber says, well, no, you haven't. I've done another deal, you know, with Liverpool. And I think Alan said something like, well, you know, maybe you want to start picking the team. And Mike Bamber says, well, maybe that might not be such a bad idea. And Mullen just loses it, just says, I just resign and leaves. I think pretty much the same day he goes around to see Brian Horton and, you know, who was Alan Mullery's captain, right hand man on the pitch and basically said, look, I've, I've resigned. I'm going. Uh, they'll want you out. And sure enough, it was the end of an era as well, because without Alan there, 
uh, Mike Bailey comes in as manager and Mike Bailey wants Tony Grealish in and pretty much, you know, tells Brian Horton that he's going to have to fight for his place in the team, let alone be captain. And Brian doesn't take that to that quite well. So Brian leaves and goes to Luton. Peter O'Sullivan is sold. John Gregory as well, who'd come in in the meantime. Remember him? Yeah. He'd, uh, he was sold to QPR. So quite a few of those players, you know, were, were, you know, that side kind of like broken up. And that was, that's the end of that kind of era, you know, the last links back to kind of like the Clough and, and Taylor days, you know, the early seventies kind of disappear, you know, that, that summer during the summer of, uh, of 1981, as it was then. It's a sad end to a remarkable story, really. And as you said, it didn't get any better for, for poor Mike Bamba. By 83, that famous season, Brighton relegated in the same season as reaching the cup final. A year later, the summer of 84, Bamba is replaced as chairman. He's ousted from the board. You mentioned that his name didn't even appear in the programme notes for the start of the 84-85 yeah, season. Which, yeah, that's terrible. poor form on the club's part, yeah, wasn't it? really poor. I mean, yeah, programmes were different then. You know, they were just, what, 20 bits of paper just kind of stapled together. But surely, you know, there's room for a paragraph acknowledging that Mike Bamba isn't chairman anymore and yeah, basically acknowledging, you know, what he'd achieved and, and everything. And it just it just didn't didn't happen. I think when Brighton went down, certainly me, God, I remember I was 14 and we reached the cup final that year. And I was under the opinion, you know, I just thought, well, we've lost the cup final, but hey, we'll go back up next year. You know, that's what you think. Yeah, we've got a good chance of going back up. And it didn't really happen. And like by about October, kind of November, you know, the results weren't very good. And and the fans, I remember, you know, anti-Bamba chants on the terraces, you know, from fans about where the cup final money was gone. And, you know, was he pocketing some himself, which I don't think he was at all. The problem was that he put so many players from the late 70s and the early 80s on ridiculous contracts, 10-year contracts that they had to pay up, kind of even if the player, you know, um, was out of form or, or not in the team or whatever, you know, putting players on 10-year contracts is just financial suicide. And really, it was that kind of maths that ended up creating the problems that Brighton had during the late 80s and the 1990s and led to them losing their ground. And that's the horrible kind of sting in the tail of the whole kind of Bamba legacy is that, is that the, the seeds for Brighton's demise and losing the Goldstone ground and everything that happened towards the end of the 90s, they came about really because Bamba just didn't have a grasp on reality when it came to what he should be paying and the kind of contracts he should be, he should be issuing players. Sad, very sad. And an even sadder coda for Mike Bamber on a personal level dies from cancer of just 57 in I know that's the, July you know 88. What, the talk, you talk about things, you know, you write a book like this and yeah, I'm a bright fan and thought I knew a lot, but you know, you always learn stuff yourself. And I mean, my memories of Mike Bamber, he always, it's funny when you're younger, you always look at people who are older and you know, you think what age they are. I always had Mike as, a, as about in his 60s. You know, even in the 70s and 80s and stuff like that, you always had that air of somebody, you know, you were like your grandfather. I had no idea he died quite that, you know, he was that young. He, he just, yeah, the, the job, particularly towards the end, you know, it took its toll on him because he did look older than he was. But I suppose people did back then, didn't they? Certainly, though, the events from 1980 onwards would have, uh, I would have imagined that they might have had an impact on his health. 
yeah, I, th- I think what started off as, you know, I mean, I mean, Brighton went from, you know, having pretty low expectations within the space of, you know, well within a few seasons to pre- having pretty high expectations. And of course, we all know what fans can be like. The more you raise expectations rather than turning around and going, oh, thank you very much. People just want more, 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 you know. And then when things go wrong, they have a habit, us supporters, dare I say it, of turning around and biting the hand that feeds you. It's very sad. I mean, really, I mean, yeah, I know it's Clough and Taylor's story, but in many ways it's Mike Bamber's story, this as well. And it doesn't end happily for him. And that's a real regret. It's a real source of regret. How do Brighton fans remember the three personalities, the three leading personalities in Bloody Southerners? Mike Bamber, Peter Taylor, Brian Clough. How are they remembered these days by the fans? Well, fans of a certain age as well now, because you're going back a few years. I think, I think at one stage, Mike Bamber's stock was pretty low, but I think now people look back and, and realize what he meant for the club and that, you know, he loved the club and that was the main thing. And I hope that that comes through in the book as well. Really, he's not treated as a bad guy at all. He was, he was the guy who dared to dream, basically. And I, I, I hope that people will, will be able to reassess him a little bit, you know, through what I've written. Peter Taylor. Yeah. Very highly thought of still now by those who remember him. But as for Clough, no, I don't think so. I don't think he was that highly thought of by a lot of supporters then. I don't think he is now. I think maybe the one thing I think, as I said, is that um, the one thing you can pat him on the back about, or you could if he was here, is to basically say, well, well done, you put Brighton on the map. Because I, I don't think he really did a lot else. So, so yeah, Peter Taylor, fondly thought of. And Mike Bamber, yes, as well. Cluffy, not so much. But then again, you know, you remember what Cluffy went on to do with all of his other, you know, with Forrest and everything like that. And, you know, you can't not love the man in many ways, can you? Even Brighton fans, everybody loves a bit of Cluffy. Spencer, I, I appreciate your time. Tell us where people can find all your work and where they can find you on social media. I am on Twitter, finally, at long last. You can find me at Spencer Bigness and I've got a website and I think you can find the books through all the usual channels. I would say bookshops, but uh, if you're listening to this in two years' time, you'll probably think, what the heck is he talking about here? <laughs> Maybe not two years' time. I think we'll still be remembering that, but dare I say Amazon stuff and you know all the, all the channels. Google it and you'll find it. That was Spencer Vignes. Bloody Southerners is published by Biteback Publishing. I'll stick links to the book in the show notes as well as Spencer's social media and his website, which is spencervignes.co.uk. As always, please do rate and review when shorts were short on Apple Podcasts, even if that's not the podcast provider you use for subscribing. Apple Podcasts remains the all-important way for any show to grow. Thank you all for listening. The podcast can be followed on both Twitter and Instagram at Shorts Were Short and Facebook.com forward slash Shorts Were Short. If you want to join the group page on there, please do. If you want to drop the show an email, you can get me Shorts Were Short at 1607westegg.com. All my work can be found at DanielRuizTizen.com. The podcast can be supported at Patreon.com forward slash Shorts Were Short. Sign up for your season ticket there. Lots of content on the way. Thank you for your time. The artwork is by Tom Hadfield. The music is 80 synth pop by Toto Cyberspace. I've been Daniel Ruiz-Tyson. This has been When Shorts Were Short. 
If the shorts weren't short, we don't talk about it. 